Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to be doing part 2 of what we started last week, the sin of the watchers. And again, let me uh, try to introduce this as delicately as I possibly can. This is a topic that very few people will even embark on or even try to attempt because it is so uncomfortable, it is so weird, and it is so, uh, I don't know how you say it, um, just bizarre. But I will say this, if you do not understand this passage, you will not understand When Peter makes reference to it, when you see Jude makes reference to it, you will not understand the conquest of Joshua into the promised land, and you definitely will not understand the full nature of the Antichrist and what is about to happen in the future. And so this sin of the watchers is a basis of understanding of what we call the angelic conflict. We typically think here in America that the redemption of humans is the the main story of the Bible. It is one of the narratives, but you have to understand that in the Bible, there's multiple narratives that are happening. Yes, one of the narratives is definitely the redemption of man. But other narratives, like the angelic conflict, uh, is another narrative that runs concurrently with these other streams of narratives. And so what you start realizing uh, in the Bible is there's more there than meets the eye. And unfortunately, I hate to say this, but American Christianity has sold almost a non-supernatural version of Christianity. They'll reserve the supernatural only for Christ and His works, but they will not talk about the supernatural outside of the Trinity. They will not talk about the supernatural with angels, nor will they talk about the supernatural with the demonic uh, fallen uh, angel realm. And because of that, American Christians lack a certain depth of understanding the spiritual warfare aspects. And so what I'm hoping that you'll take from this is as bizarre as it sounds, it does connect dots historically. It does connect certain things in the Bible that make sense. And I'll talk a little bit about that later on in the text. Now, this is part two. If you missed last week's, you can listen to it online or whatnot and kind of get caught up. I'm just going to simply briefly talk as a review of what we covered last week. I won't go into depth, but I want to at least set the stage again so you, you fully understand where we're going with this. So let's go ahead and jump into the text itself, and we'll start in verse 1, just kind of as a review of verse 1 and 2, okay? It says this in Genesis 6, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, and it's called the Benacha Elohim, and these are fallen angels. Obviously, we talked about this. Um, Interesting enough about these fallen angels, we talked about angels being all male and there was a purpose behind this. And interesting enough, if you look at uh, Mesopotamian architecture, not architecture, sorry, archaeology, When you look at Mesopotamian archaeology, they have their story of the Apkalu, which would be our version of the sons of God, the Benaha Elohim. 
and they actually put this into their architecture. And these are, in their minds, what the Apkalu or the Benaha Elohim looked like. And obviously, you can see the different features. That is reminiscent of a biblical cherub. Uh, and when you see uh, animal features like that, and then you have some of these Apkalu that have a human body, uh, a head of an animal or whatnot. Then we find statuaries from Mesopotamia, and this, in their minds, was the Apkalu. And you can kind of get a better look at these a little bit closer. What they had, notice the wings on them as well. And then we have one, some of them don't have wings. So it's interesting enough that when you go outside of the Bible, you find these ancient civilizations having a very similar story of these divine or demigods coming down to earth, propagating with human women and creating what we'll see later on, Nephilim or these half-human, half-gods kind of creatures. That being the case, what we have to understand is that, like we talked about last week, angels and even demons have the ability to manifest themselves physically. We see this even with good angels, but we also, when we study the demonic realm, they can do the same thing. And again, if you've ever studied demonology, Satanology, or, or anything that goes on in the occult, people that are involved in the occult will tell you. They have occurrences. They see things. They experience things. Physical things moving. Physical things happening to them. People being thrown across rooms and pinned to the ground and, and things of that nature. And even people being forcibly raped. Uh, yes, that's true. I know that's uncomfortable to think about. But if you've ever studied people heavily involved in Satanism or the occult, it's a common phenomenon. And so we have to get our understanding wrapped around that, that it's very possible for an angel to manifest themselves. And again, that's why the, the book of Hebrews gives a warning to all believers of, of showing hospitality to people because the writer of Hebrews says you might just entertain an angel unaware. Why would he say that? Because that's very possible. He said it might be a possibility that sometime in your life you might run into an angel, you wouldn't know, but they would look human. They take on physicality or whatnot. So we have to have that basis of understanding. Otherwise, this doesn't make sense. This would not make sense. And anyway, like I told you last week, the reason the, the church in the 5th century changed its position on this to what we call the Sethite position, which is all human beings, was because they were embarrassed by what the Scriptures said. They were embarrassed that pagans would take this and say, that's crazy, I don't want to hear it, and that's just too much, and yada, yada, yada. It's kind of appealing to an anti-supernatural mentality. So the early church under Augustine changed it and went towards this more Sethite view, a more cleaner view, if, they, if you want to call it, to where you didn't bring in all these, these issues that the Scripture is basically showing us. So anyway, this was the view of the early church. It was the, it's the view of the Jews. And, and anyway, they came down to these daughters of, of men. And like we talked about last week, the fathers, in extra-biblical literature, it, it, uh, the fathers were cutting deals with these creatures for information. So if you go to First Enoch and you look and study the book of Enoch, which is extra-biblical literature, it'll explain that these, these daughters that were, were being taken as wives, their patriarchy, their fathers, were cutting a deal for information. So a lot of the information that they were given was to advance, with, was advanced technology, metallurgy, alchemy, 
occultism, and all kinds of weird things that started happening that brought in a lot of people uh, to have power and gave them all kinds of abilities to, to rule over other people. And so you can definitely see in that situation that there was a trade-off. These guys would become extremely powerful with that kind of information that no one else had, and then they would sell off their daughters to these uh, Banaha Elohims. Anyway, it says in the scriptures, they saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So they specifically chose these women for this particular issue. Now, the, the, the motivation, like we talked about last week, was the motivation to do this and to have offspring through these, these women were to mess up the genetic code of human beings because they were told, uh, these fallen angels and Satan himself, that the seed of the woman, which would be human, is going to destroy you, is going to crush your head. The minute Satan heard that, he knows or he knew that a human being is going to be his end. And so his agenda is to destroy that coming human, that anointed one, so that he cannot come and destroy him. So the, the, the idea was to mess up the gene pool enough to where the anointed one could not be human. So that's what started happening. And as we saw last week, when Jesus went into Sheol into Tartarus, he pronounced victory over these specific angels that did this because they had failed in their mission to stop the Messiah from coming. And so there's a whole drama of the angelic order, a fallen angelic order, to prevent Jesus from coming. But he came and he pronounced victory and their doom is coming. But nonetheless, we have attestation from 2 Peter, we talked about this a little bit just as a review. And 2 Peter notes this, that for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them in down to hell, which is Tartarus, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare their ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood uh, on the world of the ungodly. So Peter connects these fallen angels then to that time before Noah's flood. We also see this in Jude as well. And this is, again, more review, just to bring you up to speed. Jude talks about this, and he says, The angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, which is the atmosphere uh, around planet Earth, is reserved in everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah, these cities around them in a similar manner of these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So the minute they did this and produced these offsprings, then God enacted a, a penalty to this and a punishment. These, these particular fallen angels who did this were sent to Tartarus, according to uh, Peter. And obviously, this place in Tartarus is where permanently confined Fallen angels are, are confined there until the great white throne judgment. And obviously, this is where Jesus went. And as we noted in 1 Peter chapter 3 last week, it says why Jesus went there. Uh, for Christ also suffered once for the sins, uh, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, bringing, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. That's the fallen angels in Tartarus 
who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. So there's the connection of, of Messiah going into this place of Tartarus and proclaiming victory there. Okay, that being the case, this is where we now enter into our text today. That's, so that's a little review and again, if you want to hear the full thing, uh, just listen to it from last week, and uh, you, I, get, I think you'll get a better uh, idea of what's going on here. Okay, that being the case, these Benaha Elohim go to these women, breed with them, and then here's the result, okay? So we pick up in verse 3, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive or i.e. restrain sin is the idea in the Hebrew, with man forever. Now, the idea of the Spirit is talking about the Holy Spirit. So you have a full-fledged teaching of the Trinity already in Genesis at this point in time. And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is restraining the sin of this, and the sin of man, and the sin of all that's going on. Now, here's, here's a caveat to this. The question is, how is the Holy Spirit restraining sin? And it's really simple. He's restraining sin through the preaching of Enoch, Methuselah, and Noah. They are preachers of righteousness. Now, it's very few in number, and Noah's working on the ark as we speak during this period of time when all chaos is breaking loose. But I want, you, I want you to learn a simple principle. Preaching the truth or telling the truth in love actually restrains evil. Okay? Now, don't miss that because the sin of silence is happening right now in America. There are too many Christians who are silent on subjects. When you and I are silent... The restraining effort through us, through the Holy Spirit, is stopped. We'll actually quench the Holy Spirit from doing the work he wants to do through us by telling the truth in love. Now, if you notice with the Apostle Paul in Philippians, he will tell the Philippians that he looked for a way of a verbal witness. Now, that, and I want you to note that. Too many people think they can win people by their lifestyle. Lifestyle evangelism, it's called. And I get it. You have to be consistent with what you preach. I get it. You have to live a life that's consistent. But my friends, Jesus was sinless. And he had one that betrayed him. Not everybody, in fact, the majority of the Israelites did not believe Jesus. And he lived a perfect life, did he not? Question, we go from the greater to the lesser. You and I with sin natures, do not think for a moment that you're going to win people without talking to them. You want to live a good godly life as a witness that your lifestyle matches up what you say, but if you think you're going to be able just to live a good life in front of them and then they'll catch what you're trying to say through your actions, you are fooling yourself. Paul said, I looked for a verbal witness. You have to start speaking because 
Not only do we want to get people saved by the pronouncement of the gospel, the gospel is propositional truth. You have to speak it. You have to tell people how to get saved. But you also have to tell them the truth about what's going on, about the world. When you and I refuse to speak, when we don't say what we need to say, the restraining effort, the salt and light that we have stops. That's why it's so key, guys, for you to stand in your post where you're at, wherever God has you, stay in your post and be that salt and light there. Because if you're not there, or if you decide not to speak where you're posted at, evil will eventually take that territory. It'll eventually creep into that. Look how many Christian denominations, look how many Christian organizations are now apostate. Why? Someone got in there, good people refused to say something, and bad people took over that organization. I just talked to one of our missionaries uh, this week that we support as a church, and he was telling me about what happened in his organization. And basically, he was telling me apostates had infiltrated it, Messed everything up. Now they're promoting the social gospel in that organization. And that's why he had to leave and get out of it. I said, good for you. And he said, Brandon, I was demonized because I verbally told them what you're doing is wrong. And guess what? They railroaded me out of the organization. I said, no, man, I get it. I get what's happening out there. If you start saying something, say, this is wrong, this is right, or whatever, you're going to get pushed out, even in Christian organizations. I get it. But guys, this is the principle you have to understand. They were in a very, very dark time. Grotesque things were happening. And yet, Enoch, Noah, Methuselah were pounding it out, man. They were in the trenches saying, this is what's going to happen. A judgment is going to happen if you guys don't get this figured out. And they just kept preaching all the way to the end. And here's the deal. You and I already know where this world's going. We already know. It's going to Hades in a handbasket. We know it's heading to the tribulation. That doesn't mean you give up. That doesn't mean you say, well, I can't change anything. I know. I have a hard time watching the news anymore. I, 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 just, it's, 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 I can't take it almost. Have you, have you noticed that? I'm, I'm getting news fatigue, I guess you want to call it. I don't know. It's because they bring these yahoos on there, these talking heads, and they don't know what they're talking about, or they're just flat out lying. And I said, I just can't take it. I can't take it. can't take it. So anyway... That could make you feel enough to give up and say, you know what, I'm just going to go and pack up my things and head to the hills, and I'm going to pack up and stay out there until uh, Jesus comes, and I'm going to put a white robe and wait on the hill for him to come back. You can't do that. You can't, you can't check out. We know it's bad, right? But what did Enoch and Noah do in the middle of the badness? Good people like them spoke out. They kept saying it, even though they knew the culture was gone, even though they knew the world was heading to the flood, they preached it until Noah's door on that ark shut, all the way to the end. And you and I, in our task, if you take the cue from Enoch and Noah, until that rapture happens, until the Lord calls us home and says, come up here, we are about speaking the truth in love all the way to the end, folks. That's one of the takeaways you get from this. 
But again, let's turn back to the text and see what happens here. It says, For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So basically what happened is, I'm going to put up with this for another 120 years. And this is basically, you can see this is a time of grace that God is giving this world. And man, it's bad. It's, just, it's getting really bad, okay? And I'll show you in just a bit. And so God is saying, I'm not going to keep restraining this forever. I'm going to put it into it. And that's an important principle. God will give grace, but eventually that grace runs out. There is a limit on grace. And so during this 120 years, Noah's going to build the ark. It is a visible symbol to that lost world that something's coming. A, a judgment is going to come, and it's never rained before, but a flood is coming to destroy every person, everything on the planet. Okay. At the same time, Enoch's preaching, and Methuselah will die in the year of the flood. So it's all centered to God's grace trying to get the word out. Same for us. I don't know, I don't know how much time we have. We talk about living in the last days. You and I both know we're in the last days. I don't know how long the end period of those last days goes. I don't know. But folks, you must understand, at some point in time, maybe in our lifetimes, God will lift that grace and say, time's up. Time is up. I'm going to take home my bride. I'm going to take them away. And then I'm going to give you, this world, what you desire you desire the Antichrist, you will get him. And, 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 and sometimes that's what happens. People, people are given what they actually want as they continue to refuse grace at the same time. So right now we're in that age of grace, guys, and you have to understand that. That's why you say, when's God going to pull the trigger, man? Because I can't take too much of this world in the way it's getting. It's irritating, isn't it? Funny, this week in Boston, they had a straight parade. Not a gay parade, straight parade. Did you catch that? Yeah, they had a straight, in Boston of all places, a straight parade. And there was about 500 people, and even Milo uh, Yiannopoulos or whatever, I don't know how to pronounce his name, he's gay, but he actually marched in the parade for the straight people. So they had this straight parade, uh, 500 people marched to the streets of Boston, celebrating straightness. Amen. Uh, so, okay, so, but check this out. The backlash they got on social media was extremely disturbing. Okay? Now, I want you to check this out. Because this is what happens when you preach against the wicked world. Now, you and I are told we need to be tolerant of those who think they're a girl when really they're a boy, or if they decide to have a homosexual marriage or a lesbian marriage, we're supposed to be tolerant and accepting. And, and you know, we go to Target and they're selling all these rainbow clothes for our kids to be on the bandwagon for gay pride. Okay, that being the case, how do they react when someone celebrates straightness? Well, all you had to do is read the news feeds on this. They threatened death. They gave out phone numbers. They gave out addresses. And they said, kill them. Do you see how double standard it is? 
We have to accept their views, but when we push our views, kill them. Should you expect anything different from our tolerant, inclusive world? No. Jesus said they hated me and they're going to hate you. If they can't say anything and get the goods on you, they'll just simply make something up or just want to kill you like they did Jesus, right? Most people think that everyone loved Jesus. That's a myth. If you read the Gospels, they wanted to kill him. They tried to kill him several times, right? They did. Don't think you're not going to get that hostility pushed towards you. But anyway, I do digress. When you see this, God's given grace, and you must understand it because it's going to get really bad. Jump to verse 4 now, and then we move from verse 3 to verse 4. It says in verse 4, there were giants, or the Hebrew word is nephilim, on the earth in those days and also afterward. Now, now we have to start unpacking that. So the result of this angelic, fallen angelic, two human women created monsters, the nephilim. Now, in, in some translations, you can... You can um, especially in the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew, came very much later. They translated Nephilim as giants. And Nephilim in Hebrew means fallen ones. Now, here's what I, I believe the Hebrew is saying and even the, translation, the translators in the Greek. It is a combination, there's no doubt, of giants and monsters at the same time. Hybrids. There's something going on, and, 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 and I'll show you in just a bit, but this word, Nephilim, it, yeah, it means fallen ones because they're the ones who are causing the fallenness of the world at this point in time. Here's what you have to keep in mind. Most Christians understand that the fall in the Garden of Eden happened, and they get that, and they carry that theme all through the Bible. What they don't know is that Genesis 6 made the fall of man even worse because these fallen angels were introducing very evil things into that world. Another third thing that made the, the world even more evil, as we'll see later on, is the Tower of Babel. Those three events made the world as wicked as it is. The fall of man, the Nephilim fall, and then the Tower of Babel, as we'll study. So you have to keep those three things in mind, understanding where our world's going. Okay, so they created these hybrids. Here's what the problem is. The Sethite, you cannot answer. If this was a human on a human, why did it create monsters? Why did it create these special creatures called Nephilim instead of human beings? And that's what every theory cannot answer. Hence, the only thing that answers this is the supernatural understanding of hybrids. They were messing with the genetic code. Wait a second. I think I was warned by the Messiah somewhere in the New Testament. And what did he say about the last days of our time? It would be like the days of Noah before he came back for us. What was happening in the days of Noah? DNA was being tampered with. Yet, it's a little bit different today. But DNA is tampered, being tampered with, is it not? They're making Franken-babies. Have you seen these Franken-babies? 
designer babies, if you want to call them. Hey, man, if you want a, a, a pro athlete, we'll mess with the DNA. 6'5", runs a, a, a 4.0 in a 40-yard dash. Um, we'll, we'll design his structure the way you want. How much intelligence do you want this person to have? Oh, you want an IQ of 130? Okay, we'll make him 130. Wait a second. Wait a second. And then they start introducing animal DNA into human DNA. They're growing human parts on animal. They grew a, a, an ear on the back of a mouse or rat. And they're starting to tamper with the brain as well. A friend of mine this morning was telling me about what Elon Musk is up to. I read the article, obviously, and, and he was telling me a little bit about it in, in this morning. And... And I read it, and I thought, oh, my land. They now have the ability to go into the brain and increase it like, like a thousand-fold or something like that. And, and it make these people super smart, super intelligent by doing certain things in the brain. Guys, that's exactly the kind of tampering that was going on with the angelic order back in Genesis 6. We are seeing now the tampering of DNA. Now, it's taken this, this long for humans to get to that point, but the angels already knew it back then. They already knew you mess with DNA, the encoding uh, that God put on, you can, mess, you can create all kinds of weird monstrosities. We already know how to clone, don't we? Remember Molly, that little sheep that they cloned? Remember her? What do you think they're doing in some of these uh, labs that no one has any controls over, like in China or someplace in Europe where no one knows what they're doing? You have no idea. But the problem is they're messing with DNA just as in the days of Noah. And I'm going to tell you what, guys, that is a, a, a stopper right there that God says, no more. You're not going to play around with DNA. The minute you play around with DNA, it's over. And we're there. We are there. You think God's going to continue to allow us to create Franken babies? Oh, no. No, because I know what he did the last time. He put a flood down. The basis for the flood is not just general sinfulness of human beings. That is the primary issue. That the sinfulness is increased because of these hybrids doing very wicked and evil things, and partly because the DNA structure is messed up. That being the case, it says, look what it says, and also afterward. What do you mean afterward? You know, Israel then goes under Joseph to escape famine. Gosha push, uh, Joseph puts them in Goshen. There was only 70 that went in and stayed there initially. You remember how long they were in Egypt? 430 years, right? And then Moses leads them out with Joshua. And uh, during those 430 years, something very weird happened in the land of Canaan or the promised land. Do you remember that? Moses goes in, getting ready. They're at Kadesh Barnea, they send in the 12 spies. Remember this scene? This is what Genesis is referring to. They present to Moses. They come back to Moses. And, there's, and Joshua and Caleb are like, no problem. We can take it. But the 10 other spies come back and say what? There are giants in the land. Nephilim. And they note the different tribes that are giant clans. Interesting. Uh, it names the Rephaim, the Emim, the Horim, the Zamzumim, the kingdom of Og, of Bashan. These were all giant clans. Arba, 
Anak and Anakim. These are all giant clans. So the first push into the promised land, the spies come back and say, we can't do it. There are giant clans in there, or at least we, we call Nephilim. And they say, they literally say, we're like grasshoppers to them. Right. They're exactly right. They're not exaggerating. So you got to hand it to Joshua and Caleb for being that brave, right? And having that much faith to say, we can take them on. Okay. You know the story. And so obviously they don't go in because they're so afraid and God curses that generation, then fine. You guys will wander in the desert and anybody under 20 will be allowed to go in except for Joshua and including Joshua and Caleb. So that generation died in the desert. That's the rebellion of Kadesh Barnea due to seeing Nephilim in the land. So think about Satan's strategy. He knows that the promised land was given to Abraham, that whole area. So now they're out of the land. They grow to 2 million. And before they come back, what Satan has been doing is implanting Nephilim all through the promised land. All through that whole land was just littered with them. Okay. So 40, days, 40, 40 years in the desert, and then finally they're ready to go in, and Joshua is going to be the one to take them in. Right? And if you read the book of Joshua, you'll see this. And I don't, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but what happens with Joshua? This is what you'll note. In your English, it'll say, I want that city devoted to utter destruction. That'll be the term you'll see in the English. The term in Hebrew is harem, H-A-R-E-M, harem. And it means totally destroyed. And then God will add this. I not only want the men killed, I want the women, I want the children, I want the animals. In fact, I don't want any living creature left alive in these clans. Guess what kind of clans they were? Giant clans, Nephilim clans. Now, he'll treat different human clans differently. But with Nephilim clans, Joshua will be told to slaughter them. Now, this is what the, the, the world doesn't understand. They'll think, well, that's just genocide. He, God just told him to kill everybody. No, 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 no. It's not genocide because the clan and, and the city they're going after has hybrids in them. Even the animals need to be killed. Yeah, I need all the animals killed because something's wrong with their genetics too. It totally makes sense in the conquest of why Joshua is told to wipe certain clans out and not others. And the, the names he's told are definitely Nephilim clans. And so you have all that dynamic going on. Now, as you know, they didn't wipe out all the clans. Joshua and the Israelites decided to stay and live with some of these clans. And in fact, it eventually became the Israelites' problem, as you recall. And do you remember an individual who took five stones and a sling and a staff and went after a Nephilim? Do you remember that scene? Goliath is a giant Nephilim. It happened all the way up into David's day. Now, do you remember why he took five stones? People say, well, he, he was afraid he was going to miss. No, no, it wasn't because he was afraid he was going to miss. David was a sharpshooter, man. That dude's been practicing. It'd be like going to a, a five dogs with your gun and practicing all day long. 
David practiced with that sling, those, those Middle Eastern slings all day long, scaring away coyotes and, and bears and, all, and lions even away from the sheep. He was an expert sling, uh, slingshot. Why did he bring five? You know why? Goliath had four other brothers. He's going to take them all out. Israelites knew that the Goliath was part of a giant clan. Now, later on, uh, the rest of David's family um, will take out the, the rest of the Nephilim, and that's the end of the Nephilim as far as biblical history is concerned. But that's what that phrase means, and afterwards. It happened after the flood, and Satan did it again. Now, here's the deal. Many people question and say, well, since he put the first angels in, in Tartarus, why would he do it to these other angels? I mean, sorry, why would they attempt it knowing that that would be the penalty that Yahweh would put them in Tartarus? Well, again, you're try, you're trying to, don't try to reason with a mind that's that far away. Do you think a fallen angel thinks like that? A fallen angel thinks they're going to win. A fallen, Satan thinks he's going to beat God. There, I'm sure Satan went up to him and it was something like this. Hey, man, you need to take one for the team. Do this, I'll get you out of there as soon as we take control. It's got to be something like that. I mean, knowing that they're going to be put in Tartarus by doing it. So anyway, his minions did his bidding, and they implanted Nephilim in the promised land. That's what makes the, the conquest of Joshua so important to understand. It wasn't simply just driving people out. They were driving monsters and things of that nature. Okay, that being the case... The interesting thing about this is we have attestation that something happened a long time ago because it's in every ancient culture. And what we talk about a lot of times, and you see this in academics, they call, they call it the, the, the giant war or the titan war, especially in Greek mythology, they'll talk about the, the titans. And what you'll see is this, this fight between these demigods who were sired by the gods of Olympia or whatever and created these, these what they call titans, okay? And, and, and that story is that these titans rebelled against the Olympians, the, uh, Zeus and his, his uh, council. And that's where you see this clash of the titans. But it's not just in Greek mythology. It's in every ancient mythology, every one of them, every ancient... Um, uh, mythology has a flood story. Every ancient society has a sacrifice of blood embedded into their religion. Every one of them has this war between the, uh, these demigods and the gods. Um, it's just a remarkable thing. And every one of them has a story that a coming one is coming to, to fix everything. I think it, you can see where it's a corruption of the truth. Let me show you some pictures just, just to help you understand that when you were in high school and you were being taught Greek mythology, there was more there than you really imagined. So some of these pictures you'll see in these Greek mythologies, let's start with ancient Mesopotamia, so, or, or let's start with Egypt. Egypt had these demigods. Notice that's a human body, but it would always have like a, a animal type of head, right? Okay, so that's an example. And then obviously some of them had a bird head and, and whatnot. And these are Egyptian gods, Okay. Notice the human body with the, the animal head. Then you move to, you know, more of, of Greek mythology. And obviously, um, you can see that they, they were these demigods. They were warriors and powerful. And Medusa, they had snakes in their head and, and weird monstrosities like that. 
Then you had, you know, minotaurs and centaurs, half horse, half human. In Nordic theology, they had these demigods, and these were the mighty men of them. Japan even has folk. Now, you say Japan is, is Buddhist. They are, but they still have folklore. And their folklore, look at these, these, these creatures. They have wings. They have a, a bird head, and they're seizing women. Is there anything that sounds familiar to Genesis 6? You better believe it does. See, once you start looking at these myths from other cultures and you know the biblical truth, all of a sudden you're saying, wait a second, there's an element of truth behind it. Why would the Japanese have something like that? And then they have all these, uh, even the Aztecs and Mayans have these demigod things that they worshiped. And they're all half human, half animal or something, or even have angelic wings on them. Then they'll have these beasts Different beasts that, you know, like, they don't exist in our world, but why do they have all these images? That's a very popular one around all cultures is a three-headed dog. Then this is one of the Aztec gods. He had a leopard's head and a human body. This is Chinese uh, giant slash weird creature, monster. Now we get into the level of giants. Every ancient culture has giants. And, And this is taken through all different mythologies and different cultures all over the planet whether it's the Polynesians, Japanese, Chinese, Middle Eastern, Nordic, Indo-European, it doesn't matter. They all have giant legends. And this is just across the board. Almost in every culture, you'll see this. And back, you know, eventually down to the biblical account. And you know the most famous giant in the biblical account is Goliath. So what I wanted to show you is there's an element of truth that these ancient cultures have, and are, you can't ignore that. If you're in the field of archaeology, not even a believer, not even a Christian, if you're in the field of archaeology or even history and, and, and understanding these ancient cultures, you would have to step back and say, wait a second, why does every culture have the same story? Why do they have a flood myth? Why do they have a clash of the titans and things of that nature? Why do they have that? Because it's referring back to Genesis 6. And it shows you that the flood was necessary. Now, moving forward. Imagine that kind of world that Noah, Enoch, and Methuselah are in. And and, and many of the uh, the, the older patriarchs are still there. Okay, still alive. And they're seeing this. They're seeing giants all over the land. They're seeing these monstrosities. And when you read ancient Mesopotamian literature and other things, they had to appease these monsters, by the way. The humans had to appease them, giving them food. And a lot of times you'll see in Mesopotamian literature that the humans ran out of food to feed these giants, and then the giants would destroy their city. There was something to that. It was a horrible time, the pre-flood world. Now, do you know what that that pre-flood world was called by the ancients? Atlantis. That whole time period at that time was called Atlantis. Now, I think Plato makes a reference to that, uh, or Socrates. I can't remember. It's one of the two philosophers. But nonetheless, the whole concept of Atlantis and the basis of that came from the pre-flood world. And obviously, Noah and his sons carried the, the, the stories through. Moving forward, days of Noah were talked about in the last days. Was, we were warned about it. It would be like in the days of Noah. So a lot of people ask me, Brandon, I obviously see that what happened, and it went crazy, and we had these monstrosities, and, and 
I just, I just can't put my hand around that. I, and I get it. I get it. It's a hard pill to swallow. But will they return? That's the question that a lot of people who know this are asking. Because if Jesus said, as in the days of Noah, does that imply that it could mean the return of the Nephilim? I can't put anything on that other than it perhaps happens to one event. It happens with an individual. One more time. Now, I can't be dogmatic on this. I can't, I'm not going to, you know, it's not a, a dogma or anything like that. But it sure is funny that when you start studying about the Antichrist, there are several peculiar things that doesn't make sense unless you know Genesis 6. What do you mean? The Antichrist is told to be coming from the seed of the serpent. That is a seminal reference. Okay? Now, what's odd about Moses saying that Messiah will be from the seed of the woman, women don't carry seed. It's a reference to sperm. Just to be frank with it, when you see the word seed, it means sperm. And it's saying that Messiah will be the seed of a woman, which caused many Hebrews to, what, what does that mean? Well, Isaiah broke it out and said he's going to be virgin born. That makes sense. But what about the seed of the serpent? It's singular too. Is he really the seed of the serpent? Let's move on. In the book of Revelation, when he has served a mortal wound, he is sent to the abuso, the pit. Guys, that's not where human beings go. The pit of the abuso is only where temporarily confined demons go. Yet he resurrects out of the temporarily confined abuso and comes back to life. A, 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 a reference to a counterfeit resurrection. According to 2 Thessalonians, Paul says that Satan will give this lawless one all power, lying signs, and wonders and, and it will be Satan who energizes him and, and gives him this power to do that. Now, interesting enough, if I go outside of the Bible and I look to extra biblical literature that refers to this coming one that's coming, it's interesting. If I even just look at Greek mythology, do you know they had an antichrist in Greek mythology? You'll see this all in ancient passages when you study their religions. In ancient Greek, this Antichrist person is called Typhon, like Typhoon, but it's called Typhon with one O. He's the opponent of Zeus. He speaks insolent words against Zeus. Sounds like Daniel's little horn. He is an appalling giant, and it's Hubris who launches an attack on Mount Olympus and its leader, Zeus. He has contempt for the existing laws of Zeus like the Antichrist. He is both human and animal features in these mythologies. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny that you go outside of the Bible, their Antichrist figure is not fully human? That's interesting. And again, it's just speculation, but why is that? Why is that? A lot of the ancient cultures believed that the, this so-called Antichrist, or the one who sets himself up, the little horn against Yahweh, would be a Nephilim, and they relate it to Nimrod, which we'll study later on. Nimrod, in ancient Mesopotamian literature, is named Belos in ancient Mes Mesopotamian literature. 
Do you know that in ancient Mesopotamian literature, they referred to Nimrod as a giant? He was a giant. And in Greek mythology, he's known as Kronos. Okay, so he's a hybrid. Anyway, that being the case, Nimrod is the first type of antichrist in the Bible when he tries to gather up all the world and have them under one religion under his leadership. And God obviously broke that up because it wasn't the right time, scattered them all over the planet. So in, in, in ancient Mesopotamian literature, their leader, Belos, is the one who built the Tower of Babel. Well, it is Nimrod who did that in the Bible. So I, what I say is, I put that out there saying, is it possible that we could have the return of the Nephilim? I'm saying, not dogmatically, it's a possibility one is coming. And that one might very well be the Antichrist. Now, that we could be totally wrong because uh, maybe that's not the case. But nonetheless, the clues there and ancient literature all point to that possibility. And at least it's something worth considering. So that, that being the case, then, what's the application of something like this? Because, man, this is, this is really bizarre stuff, Brandon. Well, I think you have to turn it back to this idea of what Enoch and Noah were doing at the time. If it was that bad, and I believe it was, what were these guys doing? Noah and Enoch were not in the corner in the fetal position sucking their thumb, saying, I hope the flood comes soon. I want to escape from this. They weren't doing that. They were preaching the truth, and they wouldn't stop all the way to the end. And I think that's the application you have to take from something like this, as bizarre as it, as it is, is that you have to be able to tell the truth. Now, here's the application, though. I get what you're saying. I got to speak the truth. I got to speak the truth in love, and I can't stay silent. Right. I can't commit the sin of silence. But ask yourself this question. What is preventing so many Christians from speaking up today? I want you to think about that. You're right. It's fear. Fear of what? Fear of man. I don't want to have my reputation ruined. I don't want people to think bad of me. I don't want to be called names. I don't want people to think I'm a hater or prejudiced or racist or whatever they're going to call you, homophobic, Islamophobic. I don't even want that. I just want to just go to church, do my little thing, raise my family, and not get that pushback. Okay. The other reason people are afraid is they're afraid to lose family members. Now, I get that. Because if you have to speak the truth in love to a family member that's out of sorts, I get it. You're going to lose that family member possibly, and you know that. And that is a major thing of why people don't speak out. If they have to call someone out in their family, they know the day they do that, it's over. It's over. And they know they won't get it back. It'll be hard to get back. Now, we've seen a lot of restoration and things of that nature, and I get it. But nine times out of ten, the person gets ticked off and they never want to talk to them again. It's the fear of losing those relationships. And that's why Jesus said, you must love me and hate your father and mother. Why did he say that? He goes, because to live for me, I have to be the priority. You can't worry if even your own family members are going to turn on you. In fact, he warned us that our own family members would sometimes be our own enemies. That's hard. That's really hard. But it is the fact of why people don't speak out. What are some other reasons people don't speak out? They got a lot to lose in this world. That's why. When a Christian decides 
to start living for this world, and they start planting roots pretty deep into this world, and they get a lot back from it. I get it. It's hard for them to let it go. It's hard because they got one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity. And then when they're pressed on an issue, like, hey, what are you going to do about that? They'll say, well, if I do this, I'm going to lose my company. If I do this, I'm going to lose my job. If I do this, I'm going to lose my bank account. Or what? I, it could be a number of things. They're going to lose something. And that ends up costing Christians a lot because they don't want to lose something. You say, I, I've earned all this money. I, I've climbed up in the company this high. It's taken me years to get to this point. And now they're wanting to do diversity training. And, and like someone told me in, my, in our congregation, they have to do emo training. You heard of that? Have you done emo training yet? To people who are emotional? What, what could they possibly tell me? The person's emotional? Yeah, I get it. But this is work. We don't carry our emotions honestly, but yet they're doing emotional training now. So it's, just, it's beyond. But boy, you buck the system, they're going to railroad you out. And so a lot of Christians now are being met with that rock and that hard place. And this is what a lot of people are choosing. I'm just going to stay silent because I ain't going to lose my job. I got to put food on the table. Let me end on this story. And how serious this sin of silence is and speaking the truth in love. 90% of the German Christians turned a blind eye to what Hitler was doing. They knew the Jews were being rounded up, put in boxcars, and in some churches, the train went behind their church. And in order for them not to hear the boxcars full of Jews being taken to Auschwitz, the pastor said, sing louder. Sing louder so we don't hear the boxcars. Sick, isn't it? That's sick, man. Hitler was right. He said, these stinking Christian pastors, they will sell out for their stinking paychecks. And you watch. And he did. They get money from the state. And before you know it, these pastors took down the cross and put up swastikas. Before you know it, they took down pictures of Jesus and they put, down, uh, put up pictures of the Fuhrer. 90% of them. We hear of Bonhoeffer and you see the other ones that were part of the confessing church. Question, why did they call those churches, the 10%, the confessing church? You know Why? Because they went by the scripture, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my fathers. If you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you before my fathers. So they, the term came confessing church. Folks, ask yourself this question. Would you be part of that 90% to get your paycheck, ignore what was going on, or would you be part of that 10%, the confessing church, that was willing to stand up to Hitler in the face of death. Would you harbor a Jew in your house to protect them from the Fuhrer? Like Cory Ten Boom's family and things of that nature. That's a hard question. I honestly don't know how to answer that. And I, I'm not going to be as arrogant to say I know because there's a monster living inside of me. Stats show that you and I would have been part of the 90%. And that's a hard pill for me to swallow. 
Very few people stood up and spoke out. Very few people. But I think what God used is showing us the Nazi Holocaust is saying something bigger is happening. Something bigger is coming. A second Holocaust is about to happen. A bigger issue is going to happen. And I need believers, God is saying, that's willing to speak the truth in love. All the way to the time they're raptured. That's the challenge you get from Genesis 6. Let's be like Enoch. Let's be like Noah. In the trenches, pounding it out, speaking the truth in love until God takes us home. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.